If you will, turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. We'll be looking again at verses 1 through 3 as we continue to work our way through this book. And really, as we continue in addressing some introductory matters just to sort of set the table as we get going, let's look at that text. Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is the word of the Lord. Let us give thanks. Father, we pray that we would receive this word as what it is, the word of the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, given by the Spirit through your servant John for the good of your church, for our good. We pray that we would receive it as such, as your word, that we would rejoice and repent, that we would be encouraged in our faith if we're in the midst of suffering, wondering about the return of your Son, that we would be rebuked if we are moving in the direction of compromise as your son tarries. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I contended last week that Revelation is a letter, but a letter that gives us a clear prophetic vision in symbols about Jesus Christ and his care for his church. Now, please keep this in mind as we go through the book of Revelation. This is a church in suffering. It's a church being persecuted by the Roman Empire. It's a church dealing with false teachers. It's a church facing temptations, not just suffering, but temptation to compromise. It's a church watching members wander off into apostasy. And there are temptations all around to participate in in some kind of syncretism with worldliness to make life just a little bit easier. And the people are wondering where Christ is in the midst of all this. You see, the Lord Jesus has come. He's died on the cross. He's resurrected from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he's taken his throne to rule and to reign. And he sent forth his spirit. Yet in the face of a persecuting empire, false teachers compromising members of the body of Christ, it seems like he's absent. Where is he? Why has he not yet consummated the kingdom? And we really see two alternative temptations among the Christians. One temptation among Christians being to wonder where Christ is to care for them, to bring justice to them in the face of persecution and suffering. The other being those Christians who, in a sense, while the bridegroom is gone, choose to not prepare themselves for his return, for the wedding day, begin to run off into compromise. And in one case, that church is being comforted. Christ is among his churches. He's with you, and he will return. In the other case, the church is being warned. Christ is among his churches, and he will judge his enemies. He will judge them. It's a vision, if you will, a kind of prophetic vision and symbols that chastens your imagination so that you won't see worldly events in merely earthly or human terms, but you'll set your mind on heaven where Christ is and have that kind of perspective. 
So today I want to deal with two more introductory matters. That sort of sums up last week. Today I want to deal with two more introductory matters that help us understand the prophetic vision. The first one is the timing of the book of Revelation. And I'll explain what I mean in a minute. And then the second, the purpose of the book of Revelation. So let's begin with the timing. The timing of Revelation. By timing, let me tell you what I don't mean. I don't mean when was the book of Revelation written. That's not what I mean. There are scholars that argue it could have been written prior to A.D. 70 during the reign of Nero. That's entirely possible. There are others who argue it could have been written in the late 80s or early 90s A.D. under the reign of Domitian. Also entirely possible. Not the issue I'm trying to deal with today. In either of those cases, whether it's prior to A.D. 70 or sometime in the early 90s A.D., the church is being persecuted by the Roman Empire. In either of those cases, the church has not seen the return of Jesus for some decades, and some people are wandering off into compromise. By timing, I mean something that's even more controversial, something even more controversial than 70 AD or sometime in the early 90s, in the last phrase of Revelation 1-1 and Revelation 1-3. So let's look there. The last phrase of the first sentence, sorry, of Revelation 1-1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, notice that phrase, the things that must soon take place. When is soon? When is that? Now look at the end of verse 3. For the time is near. What does that mean, the time is near? Look down at Revelation 1, 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. Now what are the things that he's seen? Those that are, the things that are, and those that are to take place after this. So these are two times being addressed in Revelation, the things that are now and the things that are to come after this. Now, when we speak about those things that are now, no one gets too tripped up. Well, the seven churches in chapters two and three are really dealing with the things that are now, and then there are the things to come. But when we speak about those things that must soon take place, or the things that are to take place after this, or when the time is near, we begin to have somewhat of a competition about what it means, if you will. Is it holy future? Is it now in any way? Is there any way in which it is now, the time is near, the things which must soon take place, or are those things entirely future? Well, let's look at the text together to answer this question. Look at Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, I want you to know where this language comes from. But I'm going to ask you to hang with me as I compare some Greek phrases. But this language comes from Daniel chapter 2. And it comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament we call the Septuagint, which is some decades, even centuries prior to Christ. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we have this phrase in Daniel chapter 2 that's being used here in Revelation 1. And so I want to look at that. So if you will, keep your hand in Revelation 1 and turn to Daniel chapter 2. Let's look at Daniel chapter 2. If you aren't familiar with the book of Daniel, let me give you some basic familiarity. Daniel, if you remember, is a prophet during what we call the exile. Israel is exiled for her sin. If you remember, the northern kingdom of Israel had been swept away by the Assyrians some hundred years prior to the southern kingdom of Judah being swept away by the Babylonians. 
They had all been swept away because of their wicked kings and their wicked idolatry among the people. Their consistent violation of God's covenant that was given through Moses that warned them if they did not walk in godliness, if they did not walk in accord with God's law, if they did not trust Yahweh, then they would be exiled. And so now they are moving off into exile. And when Daniel opens in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel is a young man who's carried off in exile. What's interesting is Daniel 1 is in Hebrew, and then Daniel 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 are in Aramaic, and then Daniel 8 through 12 back to Hebrew, and there is no little discussion about why that is. It seems to be that there is a kind of structure around Daniel 2 through 7 they call a chiastic structure, where Daniel chapter 2, which has a vision of four kingdoms with Nebuchadnezzar's statue is matched up with Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has a vision of four beasts. And there seem to be some matches there. I'm not going to get into all that. The point is that Daniel grows up in Babylon. He's well-educated, and he's seen as a kind of prophet, if you will. He's a magi. He's trained in that way. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has a dream. And during his dream, he dreams of this statue, and he goes to his various servants and asks them to explain the dream to him. Well, no one can. So then it's heard that Daniel can. So he comes to Daniel, and Daniel speaks to his friends. Look at Daniel chapter 2 and verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Now, when you get to chapter 3 of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you come to know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are their Babylonian names. They're Jewish given names, worshiping Yahweh, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And here they are. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then, verse 19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Now, it's fascinating because this language of mysterion in Greek that gets picked up in the Gospels and in the epistles is talking about something that's partially revealed. You have some partial picture of it, but you don't see it in full. It's this mystery, and it's being revealed to Daniel. So, you know, in the Greek translation of Daniel, this word for revealed being used over and over again is very closely related, the same family, if you will, as the word for revelation of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1. So there's a revelation being made to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, verse 20. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known, not only the word for apocalypse or revelation, but made known, semon in the Septuagint, which is a reference to symbols, signs. And it's the same word we read in Revelation. It was made known or symboled in a vision. So he says, made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So now Daniel goes on to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's visions about four kingdoms that are followed by the kingdom of God. 
Look at Daniel 2 and verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Now follow this, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in your bed came thoughts of what would be after this. That after this is the same phrase, latter days. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known, samon, symboled to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. The money quote I want you to notice is in the middle of Daniel 2.28. What will be in the latter days? Now, Daniel, and I'll come back to that in a minute, but let me explain this. Daniel comes along and says there are going to be four kingdoms. The statue represents four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then the Roman Empire. And then will be this, if you will, fifth kingdom, and that's the kingdom of God that will destroy all the human kingdoms. And he sees this vision. Now, look at Nebuchadnezzar's response. Look down at verse 46. Just one little tid. I can't pass it up because the language is so constant. Look at the end of verse 45. Daniel finishes and says, A great God has made known, symboled to the king, what shall be after this, i.e. the latter days. Same Greek phrase. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. That language will come up in Revelation 1.5 with regard to Jesus, won't it? The ruler of the kings of the earth, Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you've been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So now I want to come back to verse 28. The language is also picked up in verse 47. You have been able to reveal. But I want to look at this phrase, what will be in 228 in the latter days. Everything but the prepositional phrase is the same in Revelation 1.1 in Greek. So I want you to hear that. I know you don't know Greek. You just have to hear it. I thought about putting it on the bulletin, but I forgot. Jeff Bell had actually suggested I do that, and then I forgot to tell the guys to do it. Ha de genesthai. That's the phrase, ha, what, day, it is necessary, genesthai, to come to be. Ha, de, genesthai, now here comes the prepositional phrase, ep, eschaton, ton, hemeron. Ep, upon or in, eschaton, last, ton, hemeron, the days, the latter days. You guys can hear it, eschaton, eschatology, that's where we get that word from. Latter days, the last things. What things are necessary to be in the latter days? What must take place in the latter days? Now look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. What's been changed is the prepositional phrase. 
Listen to how it sounds in Revelation 1. Ha, day, genesthai. You guys notice the first three words there? What must necessarily take place? Now it's changed the prepositional phrase. It's no longer in the latter days. Now it's in take, in haste, quickness. John is intentionally picking up this language of what God is showing by a revelatory vision concerning his own kingdom. Daniel revealed that mystery in part. Now Jesus is making that mystery more fully known. Why? See, what changed? Why did Daniel reveal it in part and Jesus make it fully known? What's changed is the timing has changed. Entake, in haste, soon, is an intentional change by John that replaces upon the latter days. Why the change? Here's the reason. Because the latter days are here. We can no longer say of what's coming in the latter days because we are now in the latter days. So it's happening soon. We're in them now. Daniel was not in the latter days. Daniel was in the former days. He was in the days where the only reality that was, if you will, is the old creation. That's why he's told to seal up the book until the time of the end. So keep your hand in Revelation 1 again and go back to Daniel and look at Daniel chapter 8 briefly and then we'll go to chapter 12. But look at Daniel chapter 8 and verse 26 and notice the language. The vision, Daniel 8 verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision. Notice he's to seal it, not to break seals, but to seal it up for it refers to many days from now, way out there in the future. Go to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4. But you, Daniel... Shut up the words and seal the book. Seal it up. Why? Until the time of the end. Seal it up until the time of the end. Until the time of the latter days. Or here is a word that we get telos from, that goal that we're reaching after. Until the time of the end. Now go down to verse 9. He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Now listen, Daniel's heard of the persecution and suffering God's people. He's heard of the Antichrist. He's heard of the coming Christ. And he wants to know more. He wants to know more. Yet he's told that it's for the latter days, for the time of the end. And he's commanded to seal the scroll, seal it up until the Cairo soon teleos, the appointed time of the end. Seal it up until the completion of time, until the consummate season, the season in which the telos has been reached. Daniel was revealing mysteries in the former days about the latter days, the eschaton. So Daniel was to seal up the book until the latter days. Jesus is revealing those same mysteries in the latter days, in the eschaton. Thus, Jesus doesn't seal up the scroll Jesus breaks the scroll open. Look at Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now worship breaks out, but look down at chapter six and verse one. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. 
And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. You notice what Jesus is doing? He's opening the scrolls, breaking the seals, not sealing it up, opening it, because the time of the end has come, and he's the one who's worthy to open it. Now notice the end of Revelation. Go to Revelation 22, because John will be told the opposite of what Daniel was told. The apostle John will be told the exact opposite. Daniel, seal the scroll until the time of the end, until the latter days. Look at what John's told. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Don't seal it up. It's not way down the road many days from now. It's near. Now the question is, how can that be? How can the things which must soon take place, the time which is near, things which are about Christ's judgment against wicked nations and his consummation of all things upon his return, things about the new creation, how can those things be happening already? Is not the coming of the Son in judgment and the beginning of the new creation kingdom of Christ awaiting fulfillment later? Isn't that in the future? Well, yes. Yes, there is a future sense to all of that. Christ will return and consummate the kingdom in the future. There are future realities ahead of us. There is a coming antichrist, if you will, a man of lawlessness. There is a coming return of Christ in which he will judge the living and the dead and bring about the resurrection the new heavens and the new earth. There is a coming consummation, if you will, of God's kingdom in which he will put a full and final end to Satan, to all sin, to suffering, and to death. This coming is in the future. I don't know how far in the future. I don't know if it's tonight. I hope so. That'd be just fantastic. Or if it's years from now. But here's the objection you might bring, but I thought you were saying this is already happening in Revelation because I've just been stressing already. Well, yes, this is also a present reality. This language presents us with an already and a not yet. What do I mean? I mean the latter days have begun already. The latter days have already begun. Look at Mark chapter 1. We'll just go through a few passages briefly. Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. We'll start with verse 14 actually just to read a bit of the context. Now after John was arrested, this is being John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, listen, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God promised in Daniel is at hand. It's near. The time is fulfilled. Why? Because the king has come. And when the king comes, he brings his kingdom with him. Look at Luke chapter 11 and look at Verse 20, this passage, Jesus is casting out demons, and he's accused of casting out demons by the power of demons, if you will. And Jesus responds to that, and he says in verse 20, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, this seems to be a reference to the Holy Spirit. The finger of God is referenced in the Exodus when the finger of God writes the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then listen, which it is, then the kingdom of God is has come upon you. It's here. Look at Acts chapter 2, just to try to cut some references out here for sake of time. Acts chapter 2, and look at verse 14. If you guys remember, Jesus has died. He's resurrected. He's ascended to heaven. The apostles have been waiting for Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would fall upon them, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit would come, and he'd be poured out upon his people. 
While they're in the upper room praying, the Holy Spirit's poured out upon them. They begin to speak in all these foreign languages. The crowds are wondering what's happening at this feast. And then Peter gets up to speak. Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, 9 a.m., But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, catch this. This is that. What Joel prophesied, that in the latter days, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. This that you see now is that. It's come. We're here. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Well, you know what? Just go to 1 John 2. You heard me say Hebrews a bunch of times. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers in the prophets. In these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. Now look at 1 John 2 and verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. Did you just catch that? Man, look at what's going on in the news. I think it's the end times. Yes. John said it's the last hour nearly 2,000 years ago. So we can be assured we're in the end times. It's the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Christ the King has come. He's accomplished his work and taken his throne. The kingdom of Christ has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated so there's always this tension between the already and the not yet you really already know this you know that when christ comes in the future all things will be made new the new creation's coming with him yet you know that right now if anyone is in christ he is a new creation let us remember that satan is currently at work there are currently false prophets and antichrists in the world but let us also remember that Christ is currently judging the nations and saving his people, currently. There will be a final consummate judging of the nations and saving his people, but it's also happening right now. Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. So let's consider the purpose of Revelation. Turn with me to Revelation 1-3. I won't spend very much time here because we're going to come back to that. In fact, there are seven blessings in Revelation, and John seems to be quite keen on repeating himself seven times at various points in Revelation. I don't think it's any error that there are seven blessings. But one, three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So you know in the first century and for centuries after that, it would have been common for you to have someone who read the text to you in the gathered congregation. That's who he's referring to, the reader of the text in the gathered congregation. And blessed are those who hear. Those are those who are listening to the text of Scripture being read to them. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Blessed is the one who reads aloud, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it. The blessing to hear and keep sounds almost redundant. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That hear has something more than just make out the sounds in your ear and tell me intellectually what they mean. He is God. Trust him alone. Obey him alone. Hear and keep. Obey the words of this prophecy. Look at Revelation 22. You'll see this repeated near the end. I'm not going to go through all the blessings. I just want you to see how it brackets. 
And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirit of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Now hear it again. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Listen, the purpose of the book of Revelation is not to cause endless speculations and prophecy conferences where enlightened experts unwind the enigma of Revelation for you as they hold their newspaper up next to it, how it maps onto current events. The purpose of it isn't to hold up, if you will, in the case of preterism, a first century newspaper and map the events up against it, though clearly John is referring in many cases to first century events. That's clear. The purpose is to bless you by helping you overcome the persecutions and sufferings that are happening to you as Christians prior to the return of Christ, to trust him, to look to him. The purpose is also to keep you from falling asleep, from wandering off, from getting lazy as you await the return of the bridegroom, to keep you from, if you will, compromising with the world. It's both an encouragement to the church and a warning to the church. It's giving you a kind of cosmic and even something, I don't even know what other word to use, heavenly perspective on what's happening all around you to just chasten your mind, to keep you from being so focused on the here and now and to see what's happening in a much greater sense. It's to help you see your need for resting in the king and trusting in his kingdom that you cannot visibly see. So I pray this book will be a blessing to us all as we listen and obey. We'll have more on that next week. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for this letter, this prophetic vision that presents in symbolic form a heavenly vision regarding earthly events and kingdoms. May we continue to look to Christ and know that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, that his kingdom is here and is yet to come in its full consummation. We pray with John, come soon, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.